day after we hiatus for the holidays. Welcome back to the law. I am BK Williams and this is episode 18, Utah versus Strife. This is a 2016 case where the U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-3 decision said the state can use evidence against you even if they find that evidence after an unconstitutional stop. Unfortunately, I'm not kidding and we'll talk about how the court got there and why the, the dissent is correct. But before we get to that case, remember the law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on Twitter at bluecarp and on facebook.com slash bluecarp. We can continue the discussion there. Or let me know what you think. Give me any ideas for any new podcasts or cases you would like us to go over. This case, Utah versus Edward Joseph Strife, involves the arrest of Mr. Strife. He was a guy who was charged with possession of meth and drug paraphernalia, and that was found after he was stopped illegally. The state doesn't even argue that the original stop was legal. They concede it was illegal. But nevertheless, they say his later conviction, based on the evidence they found after the illegal stop, should still be allowed, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the state of Utah. Strife's last name is spelled S-T-R. I-E-F-F, and I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. So I listened to it on tapes of the actual oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. Recordings, I guess tapes is kind of outdated, but recordings. And you can listen to these Supreme Court arguments at this site called Oyez.com. I'll link to, to this particular one, Strife, uh, the Utah v. Strife case in the description. But Oyez is O-Y-E-Z.com, Oyez. That's part of what the bailiff says when the judge comes into the courtroom. Oyez, Oyez, Oyez. The Honorable so-and-so now presiding. So that's where it comes from. And on that website, there's a picture of the nine justices, in this case, eight, at the top of the audio player when you go to the website. And when one of the justices speaks, asks a question, their picture is highlighted. It's pretty cool. And there's a transcript that goes along the recording as well. So that's Strife, and that's how I found out how to pronounce his name. The other party is the state of Utah, and this is a state case. It's, there was no federal statute violated here. It was a local police arresting Strife in Utah, went to the Utah Supreme Court, where it was an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court because of the constitutional issues involving the Fourth Amendment and what is an unreasonable search and seizure and what the state can do with evidence they have obtained because of an illegal, illegal stop. Now, you might have noticed that this was a five to three decision, and there's supposed to be nine Supreme Court justices. And in this particular case, they did not have Scalia, and his seat had not been filled yet. It was eventually filled by Neil Gorsuch, but at this point, his seat was still vacated after he died and before they replaced him. So that's why it's a five to three decision and only eight. Now, as Clarence Thomas delivered the majority opinion, the opinion of the court, the one that counts, he was joined by the Chief Justice, John Roberts, and Anthony Kennedy, who's now retired, and he's been replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. Stephen Breyer was also in on the majority opinion, along with Samuel Alito. There were three dissenters, and they are correct, and we'll get into why, but the dissenters are Justice Elena Kagan and Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who both wrote, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg concurred with both of them. As a technical matter, there was one part of Sotomayor's dissent that RBG didn't sign on to, but that's just a technical note. All right, facts of the case. Now, this is pursuant to what they call the syllabus in the Supreme Court case, and it, the syllabus has a little disclaimer with it every single time, and the disclaimer says... The syllabus constitutes no part of the opinion of the court, but has been prepared by the reporter of decisions for the convenience of the reader. So that's your disclaimer. And in this case, here is your syllabus, or the important part of it anyway. Narcotics detective Douglas Fackrell, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that either. It's spelled F-A-C-K, Fack, R-E-L-L, Rel. So it's either Fackrell or Fackrell. So this narcotics detective conducted surveillance on a South Salt Lake City residence based on anonymous tip 
about drug activity. The number of people he observed making brief visits to the house over the course of a week made him suspicious that the occupants were dealing drugs. After observing a respondent, Edward Strife, leave the residence, the officer detained Strife at a nearby parking lot, identifying himself as an officer and asking Strife what he was doing at the house. We'll get into the details of that later. Officer then requested Strife's identification and relayed the information to a police dispatcher who informed the officer that Strife had an outstanding arrest warrant. For what? Something major? No, for a traffic violation. But he had a warrant. Officer Fackrell arrested Strife and searched him because once you get arrested, now they can search you. They found meth, methamphetamine, and drug paraphernalia. So when it got to trial, Strife moved to suppress that evidence, arguing that it was derived from the unlawful investigatory stop. The trial court denied the motion, which they almost always do. The Utah Court of Appeals affirmed the Utah trial court, but the Utah Supreme Court reversed unanimously and ordered the evidence suppressed. From there, the state of Utah, which lost at the Utah Supreme Court, appealed it to the United States Supreme Court, and that's where we are here. This case really highlights the damage the drug war has done to the Constitution, and we'll tell you exactly why as we get into some of this language, particularly the Fourth Amendment, which is in pertinent part for this case, says. This is the one about unreasonable searches and seizures. And it says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated but upon probable cause. Again, the Constitution here and throughout the entire document recognizes that rights exist prior to the formation of any government or the passage of any document or the ratification of any constitution. Rights exist because we exist as human beings. The Fourth Amendment and the rest of the Bill of Rights says the government shall not violate those pre-existing rights. The Constitution does not grant rights. A lot of people who should know better talk about constitutional rights, but there aren't constitutional rights. There are constitutional restrictions on what the federal government is supposed to be able to do. And to that end, the Constitution doesn't say the people are hereby granted the right to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. It doesn't say that. It says that right shall not be infringed by the government. And what we should really call the Bill of Rights, more accurately, the Bill of Restrictions. It's a list of restrictions of things that government shall not do. Government shall not violate the pre-existing natural rights of people. So back to the drug war. Now we've mentioned this before, but federal alcohol prohibition took a constitutional amendment because in the early 1900s, prohibition started in 1920, went to 1933. Back then, people still had the honesty to give enumerated powers in the Constitution some legitimacy. Those enumerated powers still meant something. And so they knew that in order to ban alcohol nationally, they needed a constitutional amendment to do that. But when the drug war got underway, in real earnest, with, under Nixon, with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, the pretense of caring about the constitutional limits on the federal government was gone. And we can thank progressives for the start of that. That was FDR and his New Deal Congress and a compliant Supreme Court. In the big case that we talked about, Wickard v. Filburn, that was in episode five of the law. That's where they said that the feds could do almost anything they want under the Commerce Power Clause. So in short, Americans had the decency to pass a constitutional amendment to ban alcohol at the federal level in 1920, but that decency was gone after the Wickard v. Filburn case in 1942. And by 1970, it was just barely a memory. Feds want to ban weed? No problem. We don't need a constitutional amendment. Supreme Court said we could do almost anything in Wickard, so all we need is a federal statute. Voila, done. Weed is now banned by the federal government, along with a whole bunch of other drugs that they listed and scheduled. And for that part, we can thank Republican President Richard Nixon for that travesty. The drug war was his babe. Now, to be clear, strife comes out of state court and involved a state drug investigation and a state drug charge, not a federal one. But the point is that the drug war 
at any level has eviscerated the Fourth Amendment. So the holding in Strife. The 5-3 majority held the evidence that the officer seized incident to Strife's arrest is admissible based on the application of the attenuation factors from another case, Brown v. Illinois. In this case, Strife's case, there was no flagrant police misconduct. That's what the court found. Therefore, the officer's discovery of a valid, pre-existing, and untainted arrest warrant attenuated, weakened, the connection between the unconstitutional investigatory stop and the evidence-seized incident to the lawful arrest. Now, again, Utah doesn't argue that the stop was legitimate. They concede it was not, that the stop was unconstitutional and therefore illegal. But that doesn't mean they don't want to include the evidence of this meth they found on him because of the drug war. Drugs are bad, right? Thomas and the four other justices at the Supreme Court decided that the officer was at most negligent, but his errors in judgment didn't rise to a purposeful or a flagrant violation of Strife's Fourth Amendment rights. All right, so get that. No question, Strife's rights were violated. But the Supreme Court says, but they weren't violated on purpose, or they weren't violated flagrantly. But come on, they're still violated. Period. That should be the end of the analysis. Of course, it's not. They go on because the court doesn't care. They're more concerned about a guy having meth than they are about the Constitution. This is exactly the way the drug war has eviscerated the Fourth Amendment. And here's where the law and order conservatives just don't get it. I know they don't care about a guy with meth. Screw him, right? He's a loser. He's a drug addict. But the very same decision, this one, would apply to illegal guns. Let's say you have a bump stock now that's illegal thanks to Donald Trump, and you get pulled over illegally, but instead of meth, the cops find your bump stock. So you've been pulled over illegally, but now you can be prosecuted because of what they found after you were stopped illegally because of this drug case. So these drug cases that eviscerate the Fourth Amendment apply to every other type of case that might happen as well. So that's one thing the law and order conservatives just don't get. It will happen to them, and it has happened to them. Not with drugs, but with other things. So when it starts to happen for guns, then you'll start to hear them whine. But that's not how constitutional analysis is supposed to work. There are principles regardless of what the evidence they find after a illegal stop is. And there's an argument made, and the dissent found it legit, that allowing police to use evidence that they got after an unconstitutional and illegal stop would encourage more unconstitutional stops. Thomas and the court decided that that's not really a concern because such misconduct would expose police to civil liability. Except it doesn't. It's rare when it does because of the nonsensical, judicially created, qualified immunity doctrine. It protects cops and other state actors from that very civil liability. And we discussed qualified immunity in episode four. So go back and check that one out if you're so inclined. All right, so Thomas's first paragraph sums up his analysis before he gets into some of the details. And he writes, to enforce the Fourth Amendment's prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures, this court has at times required courts, lower courts, to exclude evidence obtained by unconstitutional police conduct. But this court has also held that even when there is a Fourth Amendment violation, this exclusionary rule does not apply when the costs of exclusion outweigh its deterrent benefits. Deterrent against the cops violating the Constitution, because that's why it exists, according to the court. If we exclude ev evidence that punishes the cops, therefore they're more likely to abide by the Constitution. That's their thought process. Thomas goes on. In some cases, for example, the link between the unconstitutional conduct and the discovery of the evidence is too attenuated to justify suppression. They keep talking about attenuation, which is just a weakening of the connection between the illegality and whatever evidence they found. So if it's too weak a connection, then they let it in, regardless of the fact that they never would have found it at all if they hadn't committed the illegal stop or the illegal search. The question in this case is whether this attenuation doctrine applies when an officer makes an unconstitutional investigatory stop. Again, they're not even arguing that it's unconstitutional. It is. The police officer learns during that stop that the subject is subject to a valid arrest warrant, again, for traffic violation, and proceeds to arrest the suspect. 
and then seize incriminating evidence during the search incident to that arrest. Because once you get arrested, the cops can search you. They can pat you down. They can look for stuff that you might have on you that they don't want you to have while you get in the cop car and go to jail. We hold that the evidence the officer seized as part of the search incident to the arrest is admissible because the officer's discovery of the arrest warrant attenuated the connection, weakened the connection between the unlawful stop and the evidence seized incident to the arrest. Really get into this, but here's some more of the stuff they said. The case began with an anonymous tip. In December of 2006, someone called the South Salt Lake City Police drug tip line to report narcotics activity at this residence. Narcotics detective Douglas Fakrell investigated the tip, and over the course of about a week, he conducted intermittent surveillance of the house. He observed visitors who left at a few minutes after arriving at the house. These visits were sufficiently frequent to raise his suspicion that the occupants were dealing drugs. One of these visitors was responded Edward Strife. The officer observed Strife exit the house and walk toward a nearby convenience store. In the store's parking lot, the officer detained Strife, identified himself, and asked Strife what he was doing at the residence. Now, the case doesn't mention how Strife answered that, but y'all know the correct response. First of all, turn on the recorder on your phone. Video is better, but audio is good. And you say something to the effect of, why, thank you, officer. Thank you for asking. I hope you're having a wonderful day. Am I being detained or am I free to go? If I'm being detained, I make it a personal policy to assert my rights as protected by the Constitution and I request an attorney. I therefore assert my right to remain silent until then. Just get the highlights of that, right? And he might arrest you anyway, but it's better to stay quiet and get arrested than it is to talk and get arrested because talking is not going to help you. At best, you'll break even by talking. It will never help you and the odds are it will hurt you. And remember, rights are like muscles. If you don't use them, they atrophy. There's never a better time to flex your rights when you don't need to. Do it because you are a free American, as Ron Swanson might say. Court goes on. As part of the stop, the officer requested Strife's identification, and Strife produced his Utah identification card. All right, now, do you have to provide ID? Now, you do when driving. That's another issue. But when you're walking around like Strife, the law isn't crystal clear. But generally speaking... If the law enforcement officer has no, there's the magic words, quote, reasonable suspicion, end quote, that a crime has been committed or is being committed or maybe is even about to be committed, you don't have to provide that ID. But that idea, though, is a very little practical consequence or practical help. Because unless you ask the officer, officer, would you please articulate your reasonable suspicion that I have committed a crime or I'm in the process of committing a crime? You don't know why you're being stopped. So this is one of those things the court uses after the fact to do an analysis, which has absolutely zero practical effect at the time you're being stopped. So there are no magic words to protect you. The best you can do is record the interaction or have a friend do it without getting in the way. They have to, That's another excuse for them to be arrested. So they stay out of the way. Have them record it or you record it. Assert your rights and object to speaking without a lawyer present. You might still get arrested, but again, better than getting arrested after talking. Better to get arrested without talking. But in any event here, Strife handed over his ID. So the officer relayed Strife's identification information to the police dispatcher who looked him up and reported that Strife had an outstanding arrest warrant for a traffic violation. The officer then arrested uh, Strife because he had a warrant. Then when the officer searched Strife because he was being arrested, he discovered a baggie of methamphetamine and some drug paraphernalia. So what do you know? A warrant for a traffic violation. So now he's been arrested on the warrant and upon arrest, the cops can search you like we talked about as they put you into custody. And lo and behold, Strife had a bag of meth and paraphernalia. The court goes on talking about what happened here. It says, the state charged Strife with unlawful possession of meth and drug paraphernalia. Strife moved to suppress that evidence at trial, arguing that the evidence was inadmissible because it 
came from an unlawful investigatory stop. At the suppression hearing, the officer of the prosecutor, the state, conceded that the officer's stop was unconstitutional. It lacked that reasonable suspicion, but argued that the evidence should not be suppressed because the existence of that valid arrest warrant attenuated, again, weakened the connection between the unlawful stop and the discovery of the meth. That warrant existed before Strife was stopped illegally, so it didn't intervene. It was merely discovered after the illegal stop and only because of the illegal stop. The trial court agreed with the state, as they usually do, admitted the evidence. The court found that the short time between the illegal stop and the search weighed in favor of suppressing the evidence, but the two countervailing considerations that the Supreme Court laid out before made it admissible. First, the court considered the presence of a valid arrest warrant to be an extraordinary intervening circumstance. Again, it didn't intervene. It already happened. We'll talk a little bit about that, but if you're going from point B to point C, point A doesn't intervene in that trip, but that's what the trial court said, and that's what the Supreme Court says, the U.S. Supreme Court says eventually. Second, the court stressed the absence of flagrant misconduct by the officer. So the trial court said you could still admit it. The Utah Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court, but the Utah Supreme Court reversed unanimously. Thomas doesn't mention that it was a unanimous decision, but the dissent does, so Sotomayor does. So when the Utah Supreme Court said the evidence had to be thrown out, Utah, the state, appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Thomas sets up the issue. He says, we granted certiorari, that means we agreed to hear the case, to resolve disagreement about how the attenuation doctrine, again, geez, the attenuation doctrine, applies when an unconstitutional detention leads to the discovery of a valid arrest warrant. And again, he frames the question, assuming that there was an unconstitutional detention, because there was. Nobody argued that there that it wasn't illegal. And that should be the end of it. But of course it's not. Thomas continues, the Fourth Amendment protects the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Because officers who violated the Fourth Amendment were traditionally considered trespassers, individuals subject to unconstitutional searches or seizures historically enforce their rights through tort suits or self-help. And he's citing a Law Review article there for that historical statement about torts and self-help. When I read them, what is self-help? What do they mean? To me, it almost sounds like vigilanteism or some type of failure to comply. But how would that work out? So I looked for this Law Review article and I couldn't find it online. I sent an email to the Michigan Law Review people where it comes from and maybe they'll help me find it. So Thomas is talking about historically, if a police officer violates your constitutional rights, he's trespassing against you and you have a civil suit. Well, we already talked about how now qualified immunity makes that almost impossible. And self-help, I don't think is this going to help you anymore, not in the 21st century. Thomas goes on, again, he's talking about the passage of time. In the 20th century, however, the exclusionary rule, the rule that often requires trial courts to exclude unlawfully seized evidence in a criminal trial, became the principal judicial remedy to deter Fourth Amendment violations. Thomas talks about this exclusionary rule where the state can't use evidence obtained as a result of a constitutional violation of the defendant. It makes sense to me, but there are lots of exceptions, and as Thomas explains, quote, but the significant costs of this rule have led us to deem it applicable only where its deterrence benefits outweigh its substantial social costs. So let's look at that. The exclusionary rule and its substantial social costs costs. How about the social cost of destroying the Fourth Amendment? Eh, the drug war is more important. That's actually, I mean, that that is the result of what this decision is and a bunch of other decisions that deal with the drug war and the Fourth Amendment and how protecting constitutional rights gets in the way of the drug war. So we got to whittle away at those things. That is the effect of this. It's, a, it's an obscene perversion of the Constitution. The Fourth Amendment is supposed to make it harder on law enforcement. It is the entire point. And to chop away at it because it makes it harder on law enforcement is a farce. It's exactly not what you're supposed to do with it. Yet, that's where we are. So think about this. The Supreme Court blithely acknowledging the police committed an unconstitutional act, but they've developed this doctrine, a three-pronged test, 
to determine if that acknowledged unconstitutional act is okay or not. Again, as I like to quote Farmer Ted from 16 Candles, I'm at a loss. The court goes on. The issue here is the attenuation doctrine. Evidence is admissible when the connection between the unconstitutional police conduct and the evidence is remote or has been interrupted by some intervening circumstance. Again, the warrant wasn't intervening. It already existed. So that the interest protected by the constitutional guarantee that has been violated would not be served by suppression of the evidence obtained. Again, with this language denigrating the Constitution. When the drug war is more important than the Constitution, then we won't suppress the evidence. The court goes on. The three factors articulated in Brown v. Illinois, that other case, guide our analysis. First, we look to the temporal proximity. That just means how close in time was the unconstitutional conduct of the government, government agent, and the discovery of the evidence to determine how closely the discovery followed the unconstitutional search. Second, we consider the presence of intervening circumstances. Again, something that already happened isn't intervening. Finding out about it is intervening, but you only found out about it because of the unconstitutional search. The third part, and just says, and particularly significant in this case, we examine the purpose and flagrancy of the official misconduct. So an accidental violation is okay, but no violation actually should be okay. But they're saying, no, if it's an accidental violation, you know, we're going to cut them some slack. Then you can violate constitutional rights as long as you're not doing it like flagrantly and on purpose. Court goes on. In this case, the warrant was valid. It predated the officer's investigation, and it was entirely unconnected with the stop. Okay, the warrant was unconnected with the stop, but he would not have discovered the warrant but for the illegal stop. Court goes on, and once the officer discovered the warrant, he had an obligation to arrest Strife. All right, he also had an obligation to avoid violating the Constitution. Yet the court routinely blows off that obligation, again, because the drug war is more important than the Constitution. The court goes on to say the exclusionary rule exists to deter police misconduct. That's a pretty standard holding of the court. But you know what, though? It should exist to protect the Constitution, not to deter police misconduct. Thomas says that the officer in this case was most at most negligent. To me, this is like the kid who knocks off a vase off a table and it breaks and makes a big mess with the water and flowers all over the place. The kid protests to his mom. I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident, mom. So no one disputes that it was an accident when you knock over the vase, but you still broke it. And there are still consequences to your conduct, regardless of whether or not it was an accident or you did it on purpose. That this officer was negligent should only be relevant in his ability to keep his job. If he acted intentionally, he should be fired and subject to criminal prosecution and subject to a civil suit. Qualified immunity be damned. We've got to get rid of that. That's another topic. Either way, the exclusionary rule should apply, negligently or intentionally. Court goes on. Moreover, there is no indication that this unlawful stop was part of any systemic or recurrent police misconduct. To the contrary, all the evidence suggests that the stop was an isolated instance of negligence that occurred in connection with a bona fide investigation of a suspected drug house. The officer saw Strife leave a suspected drug house. Okay, right there, Thomas says the words drug house twice within 11 words. And there you have it right there. Drugs are bad. There was a drug house involved here. So the constitutional violation can be overlooked. He sums this part up. Applying these factors, we hold that the evidence discovered on Strife's person was admissible because the unlawful stop was sufficiently attenuated, weakened by the pre-existing arrest warrant. Although the illegal stop was close in time to Strife's arrest, that consideration is outweighed by two factors supporting the state. The outstanding arrest warrant for Strife's arrest is a critical intervening circumstance that is wholly independent of the legal stop. But as we talked about, it wasn't an intervening circumstance. The existence was not an intervening circumstance, and that's how they're treating it. The discovery was an intervening fact that would not have happened but for the illegal stop. So the discovery of the warrant broke the causal chain, that's what Thomas says, between the unconstitutional stop and the discovery of evidence. 
And that's nonsense. And and the dissent agrees with me. Well, I agree with the dissent. And see how the court and Thomas are wrong. There's no way the existence of that arrest warrant is an intervening circumstance. It already existed. Again, if you go from point B to point C, point A doesn't intervene. And the dissent does make that point. So the court rejects Strife's argument that because of the prevalence of outstanding arrest warrants in many jurisdictions, so there's arrest warrants all over the place, police will engage in dragnet searches if the exclusionary rule is not applied. We think this outcome is unlikely. Such wanton conduct would expose police to civil liability. But we've already talked about police and civil liability. They rarely are subject to it due to the court-fabricated doctrine of qualified immunity. Sotomayor, in her dissent, talks about all the warrants that exist and how cops would be more likely. This case incentivizes them to stop random people illegally and ask for their ID and see if they got a warrant on them. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Fourth Amendment is supposed to allow. The Supreme Court, five-person majority, three dissenters reverse the Now let's go over the correct but losing argument. Sonia Sotomayor said, and this just nails it, the court today, the majority, holds that the discovery of a warrant for an unpaid parking ticket will forgive a police officer's violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. Do not be soothed by the opinion's technical language, the majority's language. This case allows the police to stop you on the street, demand your identification, and check for outstanding traffic warrants, even if you're doing nothing wrong. If the officer discovers a warrant for a fine you forgot to pay, courts will now excuse this illegal stop and will admit into evidence anything the officer happens to find by searching you after arresting you on the warrant. Because the Fourth Amendment should prohibit not permit such misconduct, I dissent. She nails it. She points out that in his search for lawbreaking, this officer himself broke the law and that the officer in this case discovered Strife's drugs by exploiting his own illegal conduct. Exactly. The Supreme Court puts these state actors, these police, in a superior position to us mere serfs. Sotomayor says, applying the exclusionary rule, the Utah Supreme Court, remember they ruled in favor of excluding the evidence, Utah Supreme Court correctly decided that Strife's drugs must be excluded because the officer exploited his illegal stop to discover them. The officer found the drugs only after learning of Strife's traffic violation, and he learned of Strife's traffic violation only because he unlawfully stopped Strife to check his driver's license. Then she goes on to talk about the majority's emphasis on their finding that the officer acted negligently and not on purpose. She says, the Fourth Amendment does not tolerate an officer's unreasonable searches and seizures just because he did not know any better. She nails it. Again, after this decision and others, the Supreme Court has decided the Fourth Amendment does tolerate an officer's ignorance, or even worse, the officer's feigned ignorance. Oh, I didn't know I couldn't stop him. Sotomayor continues correctly that this court has allowed an officer to stop you for whatever reason he wants, so long as he can point to a pretextual justification after the fact. And she's quoting another case in that, in that statement. By legitimizing the conduct, she goes on, this case tells everyone, white and black, guilty and innocent, that an officer can verify your legal status at any time. It says that your body is subject to invasion while courts excuse the violation of your rights. It implies that you are not a citizen of a democracy, but the subject of a carceral state just waiting to be cataloged. That's beautiful. Now, carceral means prison. And I know she says democracy, and that's wrong, but I'm not going to talk about that at the moment. We're talking about this Fourth Amendment aspect. So saying prison instead of carceral, her last sentence there is, this case implies that you are not a citizen, but the subject of a prison state just waiting to be cataloged. Then we'll just a couple of highlights from Justice Elena Kagan's dissent also joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She also discusses the majority's opinion that the officer was just negligent. She says, but far from a Barney Fife type mishap, and I love any time they reference Barney Fife, the officer's seizure of strife was a calculated decision taken with so little justification that the state has never tried to defend its illegality. Then Kagan concludes, she goes on, the officer's incentive to violate the constitution thus increases. From here on, the officer sees potential advantage 
in stopping individuals without reasonable suspicion. Exactly the temptation the exclusionary rule is supposed to remove because the majority thus places Fourth Amendment protections at risk, I respectfully dissent. So there you have it, Utah v. Strife, 2016 case but the Supreme Court held that the Fourth Amendment can be violated because drugs are bad. And the cop didn't mean to violate your, your rights as protected by the Constitution. He just had an accident. So it's okay. It's truly outrageous. Know your rights. Exercise them the best you can. It doesn't mean you are going to win. But it means you aren't going to lose without fighting. Fight it. Don't roll over and concede. I am DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 18, Utah v. Strife. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments on Twitter at BlueCarp and Facebook.com slash BlueCarp of DK Williams. And remember, the government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.